Hi, Merlin. Hi, John. Oh, wow. I did a little switcheroo. Did you see that? Yeah. No, you got to keep it fresh. I mean, it's, it's weird. It's weird. I don't think I've ever done that in the long time. Well, you're letting your guard down. You're relaxed. I do feel a little bit like my guard is down. Oh, no. Do you feel vulnerable? I feel a little vulnerable, oh, yeah. Oh, no. I'm sorry. I'll be gentle today. Thank you. How, how's John doing? Oh. Uh, you should do some self-care. I've got. I'm sitting here holding a uh, holding a, a half squeezed tube of athletic shoe and boot patch goop. Like I'm still processing that sentence. Um, uh, it, that's the kind of wow. that's the kind of stuff that's going to put me back together. I, I can't believe you could even get get a sentence like that out. <laughs> I, uh, I I scheduled a nap today. Oh oh, okay. <laughs> I put okay. a nap on, on my calendar. It's, okay. Oh, boy. We're off to the races. You know you know how I am about my calendar, right? Yeah. Oh, sure. I'm on the receiving end of it a lot of the time. Hey. hey. Oh, no, no, no. It's very helpful. <laughs> well, it's you know. Very helpful. Uh, you know, time is uh, a flat circle. Yes, it is. You got to respect time. It keeps on ticking. Because you, you, don't, you don't get to bend it to your will. Time, mm-hmm. you got to be there for time. Time, time will not wait for you. Time, time, flowing like a river. Time, 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 time. <laughs> time. <laughs> uh, and, uh, this this is even before I realized. Uh, according to Twitter, today is I don't know International Nap Day. I just realized there's 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 two things that I know that I've got to do. I got to just do. I got to eat more protein. And I need to take naps. Is that right? You have decided that naps are now not a luxury, but a but a necessity. They're not a necessity, but it's well, it's kind of complicated. But I, I, as much as I am an advocate for naps, and most people are not, a lot of people I know do not like taking naps. They don't like the idea of naps. I think most of us share a secret shame mm-hmm. about napping. Mm. Um, which is that I, I was with you with secret shame. Well, yeah. Well, you know, it's mm. uh, secrets, secret shame. I'm still waking up. Yeah. I got to take a nap, but it's but very early. It's very early. And I think that people are understandably naps feel like weakness. Mm-hmm. It feels like a lack of strength and vigor. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, that's a young person's game. I, I, I do. And it's, you know, people like to, to joke, you know, with a person about getting older and that's okay. That's just something a young person does. But you know, the truth is that like, I don't have the energy that I used to have. And I, I have certain prophylactics that I put in place to deal with that. And one of those is getting a little bit of walking exercise, which has been really hard because it's rained and rained and rained over yeah. the past few months. But, uh, you know, two of them are, this is really boring, but two of them are like, I need to eat more protein and less of the other things. Yeah. And I'm going to occasionally have the temerity to put a nap on my calendar and make every attempt to actually honor it. Right on the calendar. Well, cause, so finally, the, the, the reason I'm doing this is that what happens instead is I futz around... I look at the internet, I sure. start to read a book. That's not a nap. I listen to the Beatles, and pretty soon, it's 3.15, Yeah. and I got to pick up my kid, which is a thing that I do, and I, I happily do. But then I say to myself, I say, oh, I'll get a nap after I bring her home, and that sure. never, ne- almost never works. And if it does work, I feel bad, she feels bad, 
she comes yeah. in and she goes, oh, I didn't know you were sleeping. And I feel, now I really do feel like a, like a, like a, like a, a layabout, as you say. Yeah, you're just goofing around. Yeah, so I'm going to try getting in an hour-ish nap, and I'm going to see how it goes being on the schedule. I didn't mean to so monopolize the podcast, but that, that's the thing that I'm going to try. Tell me about, well, when is the nap scheduled? Uh, I have some experience in these matters. All right, let me go look. Yeah. What, are, what, are, what are the hours? What, you've got well, an hour? I got, I got, I got, I'm going to talk to John Roderick yeah, from, from, from 10 to a little before noon. Mm-hmm. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll slice this bitch up, put, as, as I like to say. I put it on the yeah, internet. That. Right? I put it on the internet. And then um, the, the nap that I have planned is, is for uh, about one fifteen. Oh, wow. You're just going to get off the podcast, as you say, slice this bitch up. Yeah. Quotes and Which quotes. is funny because it's neither a bitch nor sliced. No, I, I don't. But, I mostly just, uh, I you know, I make a little couple cups cuts. I, I put in that sugar from Sansong, and then it's just it's on the internet. Is, that doesn't sound like something Adam Lizagore would have said. So Mm-mm. it's not it's not from the past. No, it's just your. That's it's just old, like, it's, old, uh, it's old thinking. It's old thinking. Yeah. But uh, um, but no. So yeah, and, and then, and then the, you're going to go boom right into the nap tube. I'm trying to give myself a little bit of time to go home. Maybe have some protein. Trying to eat more protein. And because uh, one thing I know, here's a life hack. One life hack I know, and I learned this yesterday, is if I eat a big midday meal, I get very tired. Oh, yeah. But like yesterday, I had a gravy We're day. Not farmers, Merlin. It's not like you just came in <laughs> from the plow. <laughs> We like to think we like to think we're farmers. Yeah, we oh, eat like farmers. Need a hearty, <laughs> more more gravy, ma. Ma, I, I need okay, me some biscuits. Pa. No, that's not what we are. But yesterday, I did that thing I do where I took my daughter out to uh, lunch, and um, I had a I had a you know I had my multiple sauce deployment system. So I had a patty melt with with uh, French fries, and then I had ketchup, mayonnaise, and a side a monkey dish of white gravy uh-huh. for mm. dipping. Yeah. And then I had no problem taking a one hour nap yesterday. But see, now that is a nap under duress. That is a body, you know. Mm-hmm. You're shutting down. Oh, you. It's <laughs> like we got to get out of Hoth. We got to start loading up the ships and get out of here. Mm-hmm. Well, let yeah. me tell you, let me tell you, as a long time, uh, as a long time super napper, mm-hmm. um, I've, got a, I've got a few things to say about this. I want to hear every single one of them. Well, it turns out mm. that, in fact, an hour nap is. Now, this is I'm gonna, I'm getting right into some some deep life hack territory here. It sounds to me like you're verging into what I'm going to call science. We're going to get into a little bit of nap science. Okay. An hour, it turns out, is not the optimal nap duration. Mm-hmm. That a nap, it seems like. The, the the benefits of a nap would only increase as you increased the length of the nap. Uh, that's, what, that's what it seems like. Right? Doesn't that seem like, well, mm-hmm. a 45-minute nap is good, an hour nap is going to be better. Mm-hmm. But naps are, there are different kinds of naps. And what you want to do is um, is get the, the restorative benefit of the nap. We're talking about like a disco nap, a drop the spoon kind of nap. Well, there's, there, so there are, there are, there are little um, sort of pockets that are based basically on your on your brain waves. Mm-hmm. Let's be honest; we're talking about brain waves now. Mm-hmm. And you want to get in and get out, but if you can't get out, if you can't get in, and get out, mm-hmm. then you got to stay in until the next opportunity to get out. I've I've heard this and I have believed this 
for years, I'm going to be honest with you, I have preached this for years, that oh, most people you? have a sleep cycle. I learned this in college. I was told in college by a cognitive psych professor that everybody has a slightly different wave thing, I'm going to call it, that's a science term, but right. that most people have a sleep cycle that comes down to increments of about 90 minutes. And he would say, this is a thing that you can exploit. So if you're driving for a really long time, and I don't mean to hijack your topic, but this is what I've always heard, was you could pull over. And if you know your cycle you know, is 90 minutes, you sleep for exactly, exactly 90 minutes, you get through a full cycle, that's, it's not as good as eight hours of sleep, but it's way closer to eight hours of sleep than an hour is. Mm-hmm. Or, 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 conversely, mm-hmm. or, right. two hours. Two hours, not good. Because now you're, uh, you're breaking up your REMs. Yeah, you can't break up your REMs because then you got you got Bill Barry out driving lose, a tractor. Who's the drummer? You got this guy over here. Yeah, this guy over here. Now you're down in Toto Santos. I've heard that. I've heard that for twenty, almost thirty years. And, and the only thing I've heard against that is our mutual friend Max Temkin knows somebody who's a sleep researcher who says that's kind of bullshit. I still think I believe that that's probably true. And yet, and yet, and yet, alas. <laughs> I'm still waking yet, up, John. Really, 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 still waking up. I'm sorry. Well, so my my experience has been as I've uh, as I've explored all the naps mm-hmm. is uh, that truly a five minute nap has the power of a thousand naps. Huh. A five minute nap, which is which seems completely against all what, what uh, all intuition. But a five-minute nap is a mind-blowing little, like, gym jam. Just like you're hitting reset. It's just a reset. You go down, and there's a, you know, and that, that you, you lay down, you're immediately like, because when, when, when you're, this isn't a nap where you're like, all right, I've got to make myself nap. And you lay down, and your feet are jamming, and you're like, oh, right. That's flop, that, that, I've heard that called a Churchill nap. A Churchill nap is where you act like you're going to sleep. You take off your clothes. Maybe you put on your jammy jams. You, you, you shutter all the blinds. You act like you're going to sleep, like in a hotel room. That's a full-on Churchill nap. But you're right. describing something more of what I've heard called dropping the spoon, which is it's when you lay in the hammock, you got a spoon in your hand over a plate. I know this sounds weird. And as soon as you drop the spoon, it hits the plate, and you wake up. Kind of like Inception. But that, that, that is enough for you to basically restart your Mac, is what you're saying. Yeah. I'm, uh, if you need a nap, which I, which I so often do, mm-hmm. you're like, you're like uh, oh, fuck, I need a nap. And you, I, this, I do this all the time in a chair. You know, and that, talk, about getting, talk about getting old. Mm. Talk about being mocked by young people. Ugh. Um, my Millennium girlfriend works with a group of lawyers in a little room, and they all think they're real special, these lawyers. They're all in their 30s, let's say. Ugh. Let's say they're in their early 30s, late 20s. bunch of accomplished lawyers who work in a room. Uh, and it's the type, it's, you know, it's in a place where they can keep the windows open. So you imagine there's a little bit of sea breeze wafting through there. Mm. And uh, they have started teasing her for dating an older gentleman mm-hmm. in, the, in the form of me. And they've started referring to me as Peepaw. <laughs> That's adorable. Yeah. How do you like that? Peepaw. How's Peepaw? 
That's actually really funny. You know, they're a bunch of smarty pants. They all went to Ivy League schools, and they think they know something that I, that, uh, that I don't. Oh, they think they, they're they still think young they enough to think they got it all figured out. Yeah, they think they know some things. They think, I, yeah, you know, I passed people. the test. How's people? Uh, how's people? Yeah, I'm like, and I'm sitting, I'm sitting somewhere far away going, oh, yeah, <laughs> people is pretty good, actually. I, you know, I'm dipping my corncob pipe in some dish soap <laughs> and blowing bubbles all across the yard. <laughs> <laughs> That's what Peepaw's doing. But but I I lay back and and your eyes go shut and boom you're asleep, right? If you really need a nap, boom you're asleep. Right. And then that first that first little jolt, which happens really quickly, where you're like, whoa, what? Oh, I shouldn't. Oh, that thing where you go, ah. Yeah. Yeah. You're done. Yeah. Uh, and you know, and it lasted like ah, not yeah. very long. You don't know but how long you, it was. No, you have no idea, but you stand up. And you kind of shake it off, and um, you know, and your ex man's got a new girlfriend, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. boom, you're up on your feet, yep. and Bob's your uncle. You're rolling. Yep. And it really, it really works. The and but but in the past, right? I would I would get that that start like what? Huh? And then I would I would interpret that as part of the long, slow, you know, the componentry that leads to a long nap. So I'd fluff my pillow and I'd dig back in. Mm -hmm. But in fact, that is your body saying, you're done. That takes training, I'm guessing. I I know it takes training to take a nap because you have to get your head, you got to get your mind right, as Strother Martin says. You got to figure out, like, this is the thing that I'm doing, and if I feel bad about it, it's the thing I'm not going to be able to do. So now you're somebody who fails at naps, which is possibly worse than being somebody who naps. But you also have to then, like, you're, you're talking about this turbo situation where you say, that's it, I am restored. Time to get back to blowing. People needs to blow some bubbles. Mm-hmm. I and, like and, this. I like this idea. Because you know what? Here's the other thing. It's like what? It's like uh, bourbon, uh, mustard barbecue, or kind of lingus. A lot of people say they don't like it because they've kind of been doing it wrong and never really learned how to do it. Right? Yeah, so you say right. you don't like a nap. You say you want a revolution. Maybe your problem is, you, you, you the, the listener, with, with your skepticism and your peepaw talk, maybe yeah. you're all like that because you never got good at naps, and you're right. one of those animals that tries to sleep for four hours starting at, like, 5 o'clock at night. Bad yeah. idea. Bad idea. Do you want onions on your In-N-Out burger? The mm-hmm. answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Maybe you don't want all the onions. Mm-hmm. See? See? Mm-hmm. It's like See? asking Guy Fieri if he wants uh, jalapenos with that. Yeah, of course he does. Of course he you can, does. Can, can you deep fry them? <laughs> of course. The thing is, here's another thing that here's a here's a little life hack for you, and you may have done this already. Yeah. But uh, you I, you know I have a I have a vague familiarity with your office. I've been in it. Mm-hmm. I've uh, I've looked at the shelves. I've seen the lighting. Um, I don't. You know, your home is nearby, so mm-hmm. maybe when you, it's nap time, you just uh, you shuffle off to Buffalo. Mm. But. For your system, your system really would. I have napped. I have napped a plenty at mm-hmm. my office. I used to have a sleeping bag and a pillow here that I eventually had to donate to the household for a sleepover, and it never came back. Uh-huh. I need to get some kind of little pallet I could sleep on. You know, like a little, mm-hmm. uh, little, uh, you know, like a little Ishmael kind of thing. Get myself mm-hmm. a little, uh, a little bed to sleep on. Mm-hmm. Hopefully not. With an, hopefully not with an Indian, but I'll, uh, I'll have a place to lay down here for the a five minutes. A little strong mat. So the way it is right now, when I nap at home, I think to myself mentally, okay, fresh air is going to the first commercial break. Or like, like I, I know, oh, 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 you know, this is ending, news hour is starting, I have a rough idea of how long it's been. And I think right. somehow out of the corner of my ear, I'm listening, I'm listening for that. I should probably turn off the radio when I'm sleeping. I don't, I cannot imagine taking a nap while, while NPR is... 
churning. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really do feel like all these all these kinds of conversations, the way that people listen to NPR, I really think that there should be a special way of gauging public radio ratings. So because NPR has amazing ratings and every and they and that's how they get all that money from the government. Mm, that's right. The, for, for now, tons and tons. for now, the money wave, right? Right, and the Joe, uh, the but, Joan Croc Foundation, the government. <laughs> but uh, lumber, lumber liquidators, Viking River cruises. <laughs> NPR is just in the background, like the dishwasher. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that was my entree. I mean, I went from listening to Car Talk once a week to having NPR on all day. Because when I moved to Tallahassee, that was the first place I lived that had both a full-time classical and a full-time news and information. So I had a full-on, full day of public mm-hmm. radio. And you're right, it was just, it was just like an all-day dishwasher. Uh, Bob Wood's mother used to listen to NPR, and she was the most beautiful of all of the... Um of all the upper-middle-class moms that I knew growing oh, up. Oh, she had the Ansan Suu Kyi uh, tea. She lived in a bookcase, mm. right? Was that her? That's right. That was That's Bob's right. mom? Bob's, Bob's mom. Mm. And so I always had a special affection in my heart for, I mean, you know, Bob's mom must have been fucking 40 years old at the time. So I, I was right. She was probably, she she's probably um, like empirically. <laughs> Make uh, her an NPR lilf. <laughs> an, an NPR, NPR listener. <laughs> But I, but I, uh, but yeah, so, I mean, there's no going back, but I, but uh, you can't, yeah. you can't put the genie back in the bottle. Nope. But, uh, but I, I've never myself been able to, uh, listen to NPR at all. And partly it's because I think, I don't know where the electrical outlets are in this house. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's, a, it's an older house. It's but interesting I to me think, that you don't do that. That's very interesting. You think, I, should, you think that should affect their ratings, though? There should be some way, and maybe you use the camera in your microwave, but you have a way to identify whether people are actually mostly kind of sleeping while they're listening to NPR. It's really hard to know, right? Because I don't, want, I don't want our ratings to be re- to, to be reflected. Uh, I don't want you know. I don't want the fact that people are listening to this, and then sometimes going, "Wait a minute, mm-hmm. I've got to rewind that." Did they just say something? Did I just miss something? I can't, I can't imagine listening to the show while you're doing anything like trying to sleep. You need to stop everything you're doing and just focus completely. You can maybe maybe wash dishes if it's just plates. But, but, but if my, you're going to be doing a lot of silverware, go, go, go listen to some other show. My friend Kevin would uh, lay down to go to sleep at night with his boombox on the bedside table, which is to say six inches from the front of his face. Um, with the you know just the boombox just cranked playing accept and the you know new wave of British heavy metal mm-hmm. just blasting in his face he'd sleep like that all night. Mm. Uh, have, do you think he had tinnitus? I've had friends with tinnitus that uh, sleep with pretty loud music or TV on. Well, I mean he was fifteen at the time. I don't I, I don't know whether I, I have no idea. I think he was just metal. Mm. I mean you have to be pretty metal to do that. Totally. But but there's a there is a part of my nap strategy which is to make myself uncomfortable or not to make myself uncomfortable but to not pursue comfort as a prerequisite of taking a nap. Oh, that's so, smart. It's smart in so many ways. On the one hand, it's smart because you're not going to do a full Churchill. That's not what you're there for. But on the other hand, you're also lowering the barrier, the barrier to entry, as we say in business. You're making it easier to slide into a five-minute turbo nap. I keep a pillow in my truck. <laughs> and when it's time to take a nap... Just in case you need to deliver a baby or something. You know, there's a lot of reasons you might need a pillow, yeah. right? Somebody invites you to a college football game at the last minute. Yeah. And you're like, ah, oh, those bleachers. Or Wait a minute. mom says you can go to a sleepover. I've got a pillow. Mm-hmm. But the key to the the key to the truck nap is you might think, oh, 
get out of the driver's seat, go back, lay down on the bench seat, the second row bench seat. That's not any more comfortable, right? Because you got seat belts poking in you. It's not long. Also, you're tall. That's right. You would have to contract your body. So just stay seated in your driver's seat, grab the pillow, and I have actually done a truck nap, truck nap where I didn't take the seatbelt off. You grab the pillow, you you, wow. you kind of you squeeze the pillow like a little, like a well, not a little, like a pillow-sized teddy bear, mm-hmm. and then you just kind of fall over, holding on to the pillow, and the pillow then is between you know because it's next to your cheek, it's between you and whatever you fall against, which oh, is generally it could it could be the, the wheel. Could be the wheel. It could be the seat next to you if you fall sideways. I envy and, those people who can do that on a plane. You see those people who can lay on their tray, that filthy tray. I, I'm always uh, amazed that people can sleep on that thing because I've tried it and I, I feel like a dope. You know what it is? I probably didn't practice enough. But you're saying whatever you fall on, you, yeah. you got to. Have you ever seen those people that carry the big the wedge, the like sex wedge? I've seen I've seen the sex wedge in Sky Mall. And there's also a sex wedge where you can get a hijab. You put the whole thing. It's kind of like a oh. like a seat hoodie. You put on mm-hmm. this whole thing. You get a whole like atmosphere. You get to be in. You get huh. your own private space. So if you like, if you drool or talk or something, you know, stay right, in you're Vegas. in there. You're in there developing like old old uh, photographs. <laughs> I've said to her, you don't talk to me like that. <laughs> uh, I, uh, <laughs> I I found photographs. that. <laughs> Smell like rotten eggs. <laughs> yeah, mm, it's interesting. <laughs> no, it's electroplating. <laughs> I've um, seen people. It's better than eating a pizza, and that's all I'm going to say about that. On the plane. <sighs> yeah, yeah. Eating a pizza, bringing I, a pizza. I on admire the plane. you for so many reasons, John. And this is just another one to add to the ongoing list. I did not know you were this good. I know you have an interesting relationship with sleep as a thing, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. I didn't know you were so sleep fluid. And I'm really glad to hear it. Well, and, and part, part of the necessity is that I'm – this is really hard for me to say hmm. because it does not – it's not what I want. You know what I mean? There mm-hmm. are sometimes things you want to – you don't want to say because it's not what you want. Right. You avoid but, you avoid thinking it, let alone saying it because you go like, that is off-brand. That's yeah. not daddy's brand. No, and what, and what I'm about to say is that I am having increasingly a difficult time sleeping at night. Again, get and, back to this. Yeah, and so the so the daytime naps are very necessary, and these little five minute long, you know, if you like a truck nap, you're not going to get com- comfortable uh-uh. in that situation. It's a na- it's a necessity nap, but you wake up, throw the throw the pillow over your shoulder, start the truck up. I mean, the guy that um, the guy that ripped off my house a couple of years ago, the way he got caught was he took my computer, obviously. <laughs> He gave it to some uh, meth dealer to get some meth. This all happened in the middle of the night. Yeah. And then smoked a bunch of meth. And then at a certain point, you know, I don't know if you know about your, your meth arc, mm-hmm. right? You smoke the meth. It's very exciting. You get very energized. You know, you feel like you could you feel like you could just march right through the Black Forest, let's mm-hmm. say. Every let's 12 say hours. You're just, mm-hmm. just going to swoop right around Paris and mm-hmm. the war's going to be over. Uh, but then somewhere up there after the peak, <laughs> slight miscalculation. <laughs> uh, you, you end up uh, getting. <laughs> what if we take Moscow? What if we take Leningrad and Stalingrad? Why do we take all of the grads? Right? The thing is, we need that oil. We need the oil out there in Baku. We need the Baku oil. Uh-huh. Meanwhile, back at the Wolf's Lair. You, uh, you, this, uh, this guy, this dingling crashed in his car with the motor running. This is less and, than 24 hours after the incident, right? I mean, yeah. it was pretty soon. 
Yeah, 24 hours later, he's uh, he's because he probably hadn't been sleeping up to whatever the decision-making process he was going through, where he was like, "I'm going to break into this house where this guy is sleeping." Right. This guy with this guy with an umbrella stand full of swords. I'm going to just walk right in his house and steal his stuff. Uh, he probably hadn't been sleeping for a while up to that point. Right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so that's how he got. Busted. Yeah, he had a sleep deficit. He probably wasn't at the top of his game decision-wise. Yeah, right. And I, so I'm always conscious of the fact that when I'm taking a, a truck nap, that some, uh, you know, some Bobby is going to come along and rap on the windshield with a billy club. Say, what's all this then? <laughs> and say, no parking here. You got to move along. No parking. You got to move along. And then, uh, you know, uh, uh, then I'm coming down the stairs out of the public library or whatever, and and the uh, and the cop turns and shoots me. Right? Yeah, right. that's what typically happens. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, but I feel like the presence of a pillow in that scenario, any cop is going to look in and go, unless I'm illegally parked, right. look and say, oh, this guy came equipped with a pillow. There's like, no pipe on the dash, and the man has a teddy bear-sized pillow. Yeah, <laughs> he's okay. But I've got to I've got to address this this nighttime sleeping thing, you know, because nighttime sleeping is also important. Yeah, you 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 struggled with this for quite a while. You you were were thinking about UFOs and owls. This mm-hmm. was an ongoing theme in some of their. I don't like to talk about the show on the show, but this is an ongoing theme for a while. Here was was what was happening with John at night. Yeah, I'm tossing and turning, and <clears throat> my feet are going zippity zap, and uh, I feel like I've got this. Uh, if I sleep in certain, if I sleep in certain postures. I have sleep apnea and then other postures I don't. I'm not sure how that works. I do not want to. I do not want to be treated for sleep apnea. Oh Jesus! I've I've started. Way. I've started apparently snoring, Boy. loud enough to make my family mad. And I'm thinking I just don't want to have to wear one of those things. This really is becoming like this is becoming. <laughs> it's like a podcast between George Burns and. <laughs> Fucking Steve Allen. Peepaw and friends. Yeah, Peepaw and friends. It's like, how how long are your nose hairs now? Pretty long. They get in my way when I kiss my uh, face. I I groom my my eyebrows often enough that it is still really alarming how often my daughter will just be staring, like not at my eye. And she's like, you got another one. I'm like, you're kidding. I just just dealt with this. So this is curious to me because when I see see an older uh, gent, when I see a Peepaw. Peepaw. Who's got unruly eyebrows? I feel only complete admiration and envy. Yeah, you're like a wise dune kind of person. Yeah, but every woman I know, including most vociferously my own sister, um, they feel like unruly eyebrows are something. You know, my sister is so against unruly eyebrows. Oh, oh yeah, she she uh, she was pretty fixated on that with your dad, if memory serves. Yeah, she'll whip a pair of scissors out of nowhere and start snipping <laughs> your eyebrows. It's like, She's hey, like slow Wolverine. down. <laughs> Snicked. <laughs> but nobody in my life seems to feel like the unruliness of eyebrows is a is an advantage. And as we've discussed before, I don't have a ton of uh, eyebrow depth, particularly not at a distance, because my eyebrows are very, very, very blonde. It, it, it's what makes you look, in part, what makes you look so different when your glasses are off. You have a different I, face. Yeah, right. It's why I wear glasses, to give my eyes some some eyebrow, some frame, um, because I just, my eyebrows are just very, 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 very hard to see. Mm-hmm. And that is infuriating to me because eyebrows are where a lot of the character of the face is located. And so when I start to get unruly, when my eyebrows start to get unruly, my first thought is, well, at least now as they, as they become like a hedgerow, yeah. um, 
even though it's even though it's blonde now verging into white, um, they'll be like interesting. I'll be I'll have eyebrow character finally. And then, you know, and then my sister is like, not on my watch. I bet it's I, I, I suspect it uh, with regard to hair. I su- suspect it's a little bit like somebody trying to grow a beard, which obviously you don't have a problem with. But for like people like me, like growing a, a beard is very painful to watch, mm. <clears throat> you know, and, and now everybody needs a beard. So everybody's growing beards. But like, mm. you know, when it's first getting going, especially when you're younger and like I could never get a fill in right here, this this area. No. Like right below the sides of my lips, you know, there's that one spot that doesn't really fill in very well. Oh, so if you're going to go oh, full, sides do, of your lips, yeah, you know, down below, like right here, and and, and you're so, talking about the Wolfman Jack problem. I am <laughs> the Wolfman. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, let me just <laughs> capture that. Listen, yes, I, I know about beards. <clears throat> uh, but the thing is, if <laughs> like you're a get lot full, of jazz saxophone players, I can I can reference your I can reference your riff based on your prior riffs. Um, yeah so anyway i think it's just hard to watch if you're gonna go full dune if you're gonna become like the dune guy and you're gonna get really like serious cool eyebrows like you're gonna go nuts you're gonna become like a like a like a an adjunct professor or Mm -hmm. an excuse me an emeritus professor if you get emeritus eyebrows i think that's something anybody could look at and go that's that's pretty baller the Mm -hmm. problem is when you just got like four of them it's a little bit unseemly so you, you, you need to commit and, and you need to avoid your sister. Now, what about your millennium girlfriend? How does she feel about the eyebrows? Uh, well, you know, she's, she's, uh, she, uh, we're, hmm. she's very accepting of, uh, of a lot of, uh, what would be described as my peculiarities. Hmm. Um, and I feel like the, un, but you know, but she has like, she has particular, she has, she has her own very specific kind of ways that she likes um, my peculiarities to be expressed. I think like, that's I think that's that's an, that's a reasonable balance. So what? So she said an interesting thing uh, not very long ago, which was, "I do not like people with unruly beards and well-groomed hair." Oh, and, and that's kind like, of that's kind of a look now. Yeah, that's the fashion. And I was like, oh, you get like a Macklemore, you get like a, like a Rudolph Hess kind of thing going on up here, and then down right. here, you're all iron and wine. Right. She said, not into it. She said, I do like it when you have unruly hair and a fairly uh, trimmed beard. And I go, hmm, that is what I do. I do the unruly hair, but I keep the beard, you know, kind of like in line. That's a good look. Right. And uh, she said, <clears throat> she said yes to that, not to the other thing. And you know, I, I was, I, I, it, that was great because that's that's my inclination, right? She mm-hmm. has not, she's not. If she came to me and said, I really like your, yeah, I really like your hair to be super vermocked mm-hmm. and your beard to be Grizzly Adams. Okay. And she would never say Grizzly Adams because that's not a reference that she would mm-hmm. ever understand or make. Uh, but she would say, but that's if she said Wolfman Jack, I would run around the yard because wow, woo, Wolfman Jack, weird. Um, but yeah, you, so, just don't, you don't hear about Wolfman much anymore. No, you know you heard about him a lot. He was everywhere, and he, he was like he was like the original Charles Nelson Riley, where it was very difficult to understand why he was that famous. Was he an American graffiti? Yes. <clears throat> okay. Yes, but you know he was already like that was back in the times I think when um, when those really powerful outlaw radio stations in the Midwest mm-hmm. could be heard in fourteen states, 
and uh, you'd lay awake at night in your room with your little radio, yeah, trying to trying to hear Wolfman Jack out of out of Tuscaloosa or wherever. Where was he? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but also radio was a fairly regional thing where you could get somebody who was like like very well known in you know you get like Rodney on the rocks or like you get a Wolfman Jack and like you know I, you would know these names but you know not have much context for uh, I was I was watching a Netflix uh, documentary series last night believe it or not Tell about a uh, really good four part series about the uh, history of uh, hip hop and the first episode about the early days was really 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 good and you know talked in particular about this one fella who like was such an important driver he was a radio guy you know mm-hmm. but it was so neat because mm-hmm. they, they, they touched on I'm not sure where I'm going with this but it wasn't just like cool Her- it wasn't just cool Herc it wasn't just uh, Grandmaster Flash or you know all the names you, you kind of know from that era it mm-hmm. was also like uh, Pigmeat Markham you know, here come the judge, here come the judge. Like, you go back and listen to that song from 1968, it's totally a rap song. Yeah. And, like, uh, I don't know, I thought it was very interesting. I'm very interested, though, you think about the history of the importance of the DJ. And, like, mm. that, you don't get that so much anymore. Like, even in the 80s, you had, like, Casey Kasem, you mm-hmm. still had Dick Clark. And, like, you know, now today, if people know Dick Clark, they're going to know him as probably from Bloopers or New Year's Eve. Oh, dear. Don't you think? Well, in the in the in the early '80s in Anchorage, at least, the DJs were still uh, you know, well-known local personalities, and I aspired to be one. Like that was the that the first job I really wanted, and that I imagined was like perfectly suited to me was radio DJ, and I listened to the radio. You know, we all listen to the radio all the time, but I listened to the radio with that in mind that this was potentially my career and at 16 years old and I, I reflect back on this and I, I do not I do not remember ever having this much moxie but I did have moxie uh, I, apparently I had a ton of moxie because I huh. actually did this which was I went around to every single radio station in Anchorage and applied for a job how old were you 16 years old Wow. And I, I would walk into the, you know, and radio stations are not that glamorous when you walk in to the... Uh, they're usually also you, pretty well fortified. They are. They're fortified. They're, they're generally, like, in strange buildings, like, kind of... <laughs> I think of, they've uh, dealt with strangers wandering in a lot <laughs> at a radio probably. station. Yeah, right. You don't walk in and meet Lonnie Anderson. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you typically walk in, and all the doors... <laughs> There, there are four doors leading out of the oh. out of the anteroom, and all of them are locked. Yeah. You know, um, but I w- I went around and I said to each person like, "Hello, my name is John Roderick, and I would like to work here at your radio station. May I have an application?" And the the person on the other, you know, like whoever was there, whoever was standing there, or whoever had bu- buzzed me in. Uh, generally someone who looked like, uh, who had a cigarette dangling out of their mouth or, you know, who, uh, who looked like they'd just gotten done like fixing radios would say, huh? And I'd say, yes, I am here to apply for a job as a DJ. I hear DJs on the radio. I believe I would be a good one. Um, may I have an application please? And again, they're just like, uh, you know, squinting at me through the haze. Like you say what now? Yeah. And, 
and <clears throat> apparently what I didn't understand is that that's not how you get jobs, DJ. It's all, you know, it's like it's like you don't get a job in a regional theater company by walking in and saying, "Hello, I would like to join your regional theater company." Right? It's like a you you, you get right, into you've, this you've uh, you found your Hamlet. Let me in. Yeah, you get you get into uh, you get into it another way. But so I went around and uh, applied everywhere, and I was I was uh, agnostic about format. I was like, listen, I'll do, I'll do country, I'll do sports, I'll do R and B. Like, doesn't matter. Huh. And you should, you should have seen the reaction when I went into the R and B radio stations. It was like, I would like to be a DJ here. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, but I applied all over town. Uh, I did not get very many callbacks, and the callbacks that I did get were. Uh, you could hear someone on the other end of the line, uh, like muffling the phone receiver and everyone in the room was laughing. Oh no. So I did. And I was just like, listen, I don't think you people understand the opportunity you're being given here. This is me at the start of my career. Who wants to launch it? Right. Right. And they were like, thanks. Thanks for stopping by. We'll put your application on file. You know, they, they like digging around. They found an application. Half the time they handed me a yellow legal pad. We're like, fill out your own application. <laughs> but, but eventually, you know, I went down and, and, uh, I went down to, uh, the local UHF 24 hour music video television station that had just opened. I've told you this story. I'm sure. Well, remind I, me. <clears throat> I feel like I don't know this one. I, no, in, I, in, tell me again. In Anchorage, in, in the mid '80s, there was a the success of MTV brought uh, like a new business model, mm-hmm. which was <laughs> and the low operating costs of MTV. <laughs> I mean, right? Like people just That's give right. you free stuff to put up. Well, and they, yeah, they had they had what five old radio de- or five you know like what what were uh, i think considered the cool radio dj's and they just sat there basically played played videos yeah, but were... and, but what we didn't know and what we didn't know about them what we didn't know about Casey Kasem or at least i didn't know was it wasn't recorded in real time right they could just <laughs> right it wasn't like there was always somebody sitting there like watching the video oh it's and here we go a flock of seagulls with iran they're with their, with their palm uh, against their cheek going hmm, yeah he walked along the avenue look at that uh-huh. Uh-huh. they're actually uh, watching cu- the video while it's playing <laughs> get get a cup of tea and wander around like uh like howard hessman but uh, it's but, true only the lonely can play hmm so wise <laughs> they yeah, <laughs> uh, that's right. That's right. That, but, but that was how they did it at regional radio stations, right? At local radio stations. Oh, absolutely, right. It was all happening in real time because they had to be there to answer the telephone when you called. Uh, and so this regional model was, hey, there's all this UHF frequency, which, I, which they still don't understand. Um, I still don't understand why UHF uh, wasn't like completely populated by television channels but i guess it must have been you know, hard to a, get a license but well, i agree with the, you the, why, why weren't there like 10 uhf stations all we had was independent and pbs i feel like the <clears throat> i feel like the barrier to entry is do can you get a transmitter can you get a powerful enough transmitter that you can be seen anywhere right um, j- just for a quick real-time uh, fact check uh wolfman jack was indeed broadcasting from a border station so he yeah. was in like la but there was this xerb was like uh, like fifty miles away and shooting out fifty thousand watts. 
Well, and I think I think even before he was in L.A., he, I, if I recall his story correctly, he was down in Texas or something and went over and was like, I'm on a Mexican radio. Radio. Or, you know, it might have even been like, I hoid it, I hoid it, I hoid it on the X. Uh, Border Blaster Station in Rosarito Beach, Mexico, branded as the Mighty 1090 in Hollywood, California. The station boasted 50,000 watts of boss soul power. There you go. Boss soul power, Merle. Mm. Mm. Anyway, so so in the, the, I don't know, early 80s, mid 80s, there was this thing with like, hey, music videos are easy to get a hold of. They're just, they're thick on the ground right now because everybody's making them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um. Why don't and we, we and start... we were watching them. I would, every every spare okay. minute I had before school, after school, before bed, every spare minute I could, I was like, "How do I get more of the videos?" Yeah, I'm I'm sitting there trying to I'm sitting there waiting for the Captain Sensible video to come back on. Mm-hmm. The MTV only played that Captain Sensible video 15 times, and the you know it was just like this is dumb, and they threw it in the waste paper basket. But that was, I that was it... me and Stand and Deliver by Adam and the Ants. It was a real rarity. Oh, like when it came was... on, it was like it made my day. Yeah, with the yeah, smoke yeah. machines and them chomp 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 and chomp chomp. Uh, so that so in Anchorage, and, and this is one of the very few. I, I think it was only a handful of places in the United States. Uh, a group of business people said, "This is the future of television. It's like radio, and all we have to do is hook it up to a transmitter and hire some hire some young people to uh, understand the, the the lexicon. We'll get a bunch of videos, which." It's not hard to acquire somehow. I guess probably because record companies were like throw just shooting videos out of a cannon at whoever would take them. And they opened a television station called Catch 22 on uh, UHF Station 22 wow. where they were playing music videos. And it was local D- local VJs. And when that came on the air, I, I had already applied all over town at all of, the, uh, all of the radio stations. And I was like, you have got to be freaking kidding me. We just opened our own local MTV Catch Twenty Two, where the you know the music station, where the music is, or whatever the whatever the catchphrase was. That's got you written all over it. Yeah, and I was just like, "You've got," oh. and I ran down there and put in my application, and they laughed at me. But because of this moxie that I'm describing, I just kept going back. I went down there and I would sit in the lobby. I made a videotape of myself. In front of a camera, and I, of course, I didn't own a video camera, so I had to go use a friend's video camera. And I sat there and was like, "Hey, everybody! Hey, Anchorage! That last track you saw was Jeff was Def Leppard, and upcoming is the is the ZZ Top band. Stay tuned!" And then, you know, I did a bunch of those and made this video. Did you run the video? I took it down there and I handed it off to the to the um, you know and 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 Catch Twenty Two actually did have a Lonnie Anderson, who was very gentle with me, uh, but every time I came in, she would she'd say, "Oh, the program director is in a meeting. He'll be with you in a moment." And I would sit on the chair. I was you know I had grown I had had my growth spurt already, but I still felt like the chair was very tall, mm-hmm. and I would swing my legs <laughs> uh, in my in my short pants with my socks pulled up to my knees, uh, playing. <laughs> Like a battle wall game, and then there obviously was a back door to this place because then it would get to be uh, the close of the business day, and she would say, "Oh, I'm afraid that he couldn't see you today. He's already left." Oh, the that's miserable. You're Rupert Pupkin. Yeah, it happened many, many times. 
Uh, and then somehow, and I just kept going. I don't, I, I cannot think of another, oh, wait a minute. There's another example. And it happened at the same time in my life when I decided that I was going to, uh, that I was going to be Kelly Kiefer's boyfriend. All right. And all right. I'd never had a, I'd never had a girlfriend before. I didn't know how to do it. And so I just was like, I just kept sending her notes. You conjured an orb. I did. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm going to be your boyfriend. And she, she would say, no, you're not. And that lasted for months <laughs> until I was her boyfriend. <laughs> Um, but I so I so at this point, and I don't know why I didn't learn this lesson because it worked with Kelly Kiefer, and it eventually worked with Catch Twenty Two. I kept going down there until finally he came out. The great Richard Hadley, uh, who was one of uh, only two rockabilly guys in all of Anchorage, Richard Hadley finally came out from behind his magic wall and said, "All right, kid, I looked at your tape. It was terrible. There's no way I'm putting you on the air, but I will give you a job as long as you promise never to skip school." <laughs> and I wow. said, I promise, I promise. And he said, if I ever catch you skipping school, you're fired. And I was like, I swear, I swear I won't skip school. And then, uh, yeah, he gave me a job and my, you know, and I, and my, uh, my, my shows were overnight. So I actually, I, I should have learned at that from those experiences that if you have moxie, uh, you can, you know, you can accomplish anything. But I think if I, if I look back, those are, after I got that job at Catch Twenty Two, I never ever had any Moxie again. What I happened to went. your Moxie? I, you know, I forget about Moxie, but Moxie's definitely a thing. Yeah, I stopped ringing doorbells. I stopped going in and sitting in people's offices and swinging my feet. Yeah, I stopped. Uh, I stopped saying, "You know what, sir? I'm going to be the best salesperson this this store has ever had." I oh wait, I tried one more time mm-hmm. when I was 24, and I was trying to decide whether or not I was going to be a professional alcoholic or whether I was going <laughs> to. You know, whether I really had the, whether I had the moxie to do that. <laughs> really going for the green jacket. <laughs> I'm just like, listen, honey, that's right. Am I going to, am I going to Augusta here? Or am I going to be a, am I going to be a pro at a, at like a community golf course? Right. <clears throat> and I was thinking to myself, because I was trying to work downtown, I was trying to work, I worked at Piper Jaffrey, which was an investment bank. Is this the place and, that had all their, uh, all their files in the top floor? That's right. That's okay. right. And I and I would sit in a manual typewriter and type out these million and a half dollar checks to the Gateses uh, while I was wearing combat boots because hey, yeah, typewriter. And I said, this isn't this isn't for me. This is not. I mean, there are plenty of people at this investment bank who are professional alcoholics, but they are coming at this from somewhere else. They got a they got a a business degree from you know Washington State University, and they're in here. And, you know, they did not pursue this job in order to uh, put a ma- put a put a beard on their functional alcoholism. That is a the alcoholism is a byproduct of trying to sell stocks to people. OK. All right. OK. And calling people to sell stocks. And I'm going the other direction. I'm starting out with alcoholism as the goal. What kind of job will allow me to, you know, will allow me to pursue my true vocation? And I, I said to <clears throat> I said to myself. Used car salesman. Used car salesman is the perfect job for me. I like I like people. I like cars. I like talking to people. You can have a bottle in your desk. How cool would that yep, be? Exactly. But you just got a flask in your hip pocket. You're like Kurt Russell in used cars. And, you get to uh, wear a blazer. You get to wear a freaking kooky blazer. You get to go right? outside. You get to you get to you get to ask people, "What do I have to do today to to put you in this sedan?" 
That's right. You get out there. You say, "Look, the undercoating comes comes like that from the factory." Talk to my manager, it's a, but you know, it's a used car, right? So you don't even have to. Mm-mm. You don't even have to do that. And on okay, now that I'm remembering this correctly, when I was taking this is this was not an idea that started when I was 24 because when I was applying at radio stations at the age of 16, I was also applying at used car lots in Anchorage. I absolutely did yeah, this. You have more moxie than you realized. I forgot completely about that side of the story. I was applying at radio stations and at used car lots because somehow I recognized that the two jobs were very, very similar to one another. Wow. And when I rolled up on used car lots where there actually were like strings of flags flapping in the wind and a double wide trailer set uh, set uh, at the long axis at the end of the parking lot with a kind of with some steps up to it and a and a like a screen door cut into the side. I I I distinctly remember walking across this parking lot and there was a guy standing at the top of the uh, of the steps up to the double wide trailer with the sliding glass door open because it was spring. And he's standing there smoking. I'm. I am remembering him smoking a cigar. I have no idea whether he was or not. Right. But he is a, a genuine Herb Tarlick standing up there, and he sees me coming, and he imagines to himself, "Here's a 16 year old. I'm going to put him into a 1969 Dodge Dart." So he's looking for his first car. Sure. And I walked up, and I was like, "Sir, I am ready to work for you." Wow. And he said, "How old are you?" And I said, 16, but I can do anything. I can do anything around here. But the thing was what I, I was not saying to him, I'm ready to wash cars. I'm ready to, I'm ready to schlep stuff around in order to learn your trade, sir. I am ready to apprentice to you. No, I was walking up saying, I am a born used car salesman and just turn me loose. You're not, you're not Daniel son. You're Mr. Miyagi. That's right. Put a blazer on me mm-hmm. and, and turn me loose on people. And, and he had the, he had the. He had an even worse look than the uh, than the than the radio station people. He was just like he because it was like I walked in. As far as he was concerned, it was like I walked into uh, an emergency room and said to the emergency room doctor, "Step aside, my good man, and let me show you. You know what I'm twirling scalpers and evil." How old are hand. you? I'm sixteen. I'm sixteen. Have you ever seen Doogie Howser? It hasn't even come on the air yet because no. I am he. Your kids are going to love it. But so I went down. So at 24, I guess I revisited this idea. Like, this is going to be a great job for me as I practice my my, my true art form, mm-hmm. which is dissolution. <laughs> I'm going to go. I'm going to do this. I'm going to make mm-hmm. this real. And I went down to the Honda dealership, which also ran up ran a, uh, a used car lot. And it was right down the hill from where I lived. And I walked in, and the salespeople were about my age. Really? Yeah. You know, guys in their mid-20s selling uh-huh. cars. Wow. <clears throat> um, and they are... So I walk in, and they are hustling. These guys are moving fast. They're wa- they're fast walkers. Mm-hmm. You got a big car lot. It's right in the center of town. And I said, hey, you know, I said, "Hey there, I'm looking for uh, I'm looking for a job. I think I'm a born I'm a natural at this." And the manager, who was 35, took me kind of seriously, although I was wearing combat boots and I had a soul patch mm-hmm. and probably a puka shell necklace. Let's mm-hmm. be honest, given the times. Mm-hmm. 
And so he actually gave me a real application, which I filled out, and then he actually gave me an interview where I went and sat at a desk, and he was like, uh, all right, well, let's talk about this. You know, you, you're looking for a job. We're looking, we're looking for people. And I said, well, I think it's a match made in heaven, and I was ready to start that day. Uh, because I'd been out of work for a while and I needed some cash. Mm-hmm. And he said, all right, well, uh, you know, tell me about yourself. And we sat and chatted and adapted up to top. And then I said, <clears throat> so, I mean, my idea is, uh, right, this is nine to five job and, uh, right, and you know, weekends off. And I'm uh, sometimes my band uh, plays on Friday. So I would need to get off a little bit early in order to make it to sound check. And, you know, we practice on Tuesdays and Thursdays, so you know, I'll be up, kind of probably be out of here at 445. Uh-huh. And he's just, he's just sitting there with his chin on his hand. <laughs> Anything else? <laughs> and, and I said, and the, you know, given that it's you're selling used cars, it's not like you got to be here at 7, right? Who's buying a car at 7? Um, so, you know, I'm feeling like rolling at 10, roll out at 4. You're managing. Like you're a, managing expectations. Yeah, I feel. I feel like uh, I'm going to sell a bunch of cars in that time. And he listens to me talk for a while and uh, and lay out what my expectations are. And then he does a very curious thing, which is some guy is fast walking past. And this is the era of the wet look in men's hair gel fashion. Do you remember oh, yeah. this? Oh yeah, I was a dippity doo man. Yeah, a lot of hair gel, which causes your hair to become brittle like the top of a meringue, <laughs> right? Yeah, um, no, I know. It's very, very, it's very crispy. Yeah, and and yet also looks wet, like like uh, it's it's solid uh, solid as as lucite, but wet looking. And this guy's fast walking past, and he's got this short hair, but it's wet. It's wet dippity do. Covered in, and the uh, manager's like, "Hey, uh, you know, hey, uh, Brendan or whatever. Hang on just a second. And Brendan like goes from fast walking to stopped, and he's like, "What can I do for you, Bob? What's what's up, Bob? What what do you need? How's this about it, Bob?" And uh, Bob says, "Hey, would you tell uh, would you tell John here kind of what your schedule is like?" And he was like, "Huh? What? My uh, you mean my work schedule? Yeah. As a matter of fact, sure, I will." You know, have his boo. And he and very they're very friendly. Yeah, sure. And he kinda he kinda puts his hand on the back of my chair and he's like, I get here about seven. I stay till about ten or eleven o'clock at night every day. I'm here seven days a week. I'm just hustling. You know what I mean? Like I'm Ooh, hustling. Every day I'm hustling. I'm trying to sell some cars here. And if somebody needs me to stay, if somebody you know, if somebody can't decide uh-huh, and they're uh-huh. and it's nine thirty PM and they want me to stay till ten, you bet I'm gonna stay. You know, he's you got he's got PMA, he's got positive mental attitude. He freaking does, and he's trying to put some people in some automobiles. Mm-hmm. And as he breaks it down, super friendly, and Bob is super friendly, I'm sitting in the chair realizing, whoa, this is not the job for me at all. Where's all this hustle coming from? These guys really care. You've about already shown people- an extraordinary amount of, of moxie just to be there. It seems like at this point you should be able to just kind of rest on your laurels. Well, sure. And I mean, I don't know if they've ever seen me in action. <laughs> uh, but you assume you'd be great at it. You know, the thing is, there are stormtroopers, right? And there are Jedi. And stormtroopers seem to be marching all the time. They're marching down the hall. They're marching this way. They're marching that way. They got that little toaster following them really fast. Uh, Toaster doesn't seem to be able to get down a hall without without bumping into a wall. Yes. 
Whereas a Jedi mm-hmm. just kind of sneaks around, uh, slide into in your a- DMs like exactly. You're 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 coming. You know, Polly, he didn't uh, he didn't uh, move fast because he didn't need to move fast. You, you, move. you know what I'm saying? You come in there. You're 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 going to change the temperature in the room, my friend. Yeah, that's right. You get a man that's like John it. Roderick in there. Things are, you're going to learn a lot about how to how to move some automobiles. Precisely. It's a it's a Sicilian message. It means Luca Brasi sticks with the fishes. What I'm what I'm saying is you don't know. I'm going to walk into this used car lot dressed in a burlap robe, and I'm going to say with the with puka shells, and I'm going to say this isn't the dart you're looking for. No, I used to work with your father, and then people are going to be driving out of here. It's going to be a freaking traffic jam at the next light. The number of people in Honda Civics heading in every direction. Uh, so after I feel a great disturbance in the force, <laughs> as if thousands of people are suddenly going to get a great deal on financing. <laughs> yeah, it's like thousands of people are driving CRXs, and uh, you know, like on their on I their do. way. I know, I'll just always think of you wearing the robe with the hood up, and then yeah. you're out putting balloons on the car, dressed yeah. like Obi Wan. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm filling up balloons, right? That's right. the sound of my, my helium. Well, you got tank. PMA, you got positive mental attitude, you got a little bit of moxie, and you you just happen to be a Jedi who sells used cars. Yeah, people are going to see that moxie. They're going right. to they're going to see. They're going to sense the moxie. They're going to feel it. They're going to be over at Carl's Jr. and go like, "I think I might need a new automobile." Yeah, that's right. I'm going to walk out the door of that of that double wide trailer, and the Jawas are going to scatter. <laughs> love it, love it. <laughs> and then little broken droids will be lying around in the right. sand. He's got a bad motivator. <laughs> <laughs> So, so it's gonna, you know what? It's gonna be like fucking thwomping nerf rats. No, I know it's a nerf herder. I see it in my in my in my mind's Jedi eye right now. I see you fundamentally changing the way the, the cars are sold. I see it. I see it. That's what I saw too. But, but what Bob, Bob, Bob was trying to give you a little bit of his own, a little a little bit of Jedi from Bob. Huh? He's well, trying to give you a little thing. bit of mind trick. Brendan's leaning in, and he's telling me about his schedule. But I look around, and I'm seeing that Chet and uh, and Dougie and uh, the other guys yeah. have all been listening in on my interview because it's an open plan office, uh, which is to say there's just a bunch of desks in the in the lobby of a car dealership. They've all been listening, and they're all smirking. And this is the one to, and I and I think uh, I think as Brendan walked by and got grabbed by Bob, he had also been listening and was also smirking. And this was one of the rare instances where a whole bunch of guys with dippity do in their hair smirking at me was justified. They were justifiably <clears throat> smirking at me, yeah, yeah. Because again, I had walked into hockey practice with a pair of skis. And I'd said, look, I got this. Have you guys, you guys maybe have never seen a guy uh, audition for the Oilers with skis. But There's here the, I am. This I'm is one, of the, one sk- of the problems of the outside the box thinker is that in, in a given context, you need somebody who f- first understands what the fucking box is before they decide to be out of it. You got to know what the box is. You got to know what the box, you know what I'm saying? I didn't know what the box was. Right. Like, you know, you, you don't get to be Picasso by just, you know, scribbling on a page, you know, in that case. But that's that's what it feels like. And this is that weird provincialism of youth is really mm-hmm. feeling like, you know, it's like uh, my friend Harry used to say, he's like, I've never played drums, but I just feel like I'd be really good at drums. Yeah. And he, he, eventually learned, he did eventually learn to play drums, but you know that feeling. Give me the tennis racket. Obviously, I'm Pete Townsend. Yeah, well, and and I'm picturing a situation where, like, I'm standing there in the car lot, and, like, 
Hamid Karzai with his eleven friend, uh, his eleven family members uh, uh, arrives wearing his uh, his Afghani toque, mm-hmm. and he says, "I want to get into a CRX." And I say, "Awesome, we're going to make this happen." I got band practice, but. <laughs> Let me give you my card tomorrow morning. Come sign, you know, sign the documents. So you'd be also moving into fleet sales. Well, I mean, or you know, who knows what who knows what cars I was looking for at the time. That's a good point. Yeah, he he might not want to be too matchy matchy. Exactly, and you know, and I don't know, I don't know exactly at at that point what the best Honda for a desert environment is, right? Because that was a little bit prior to the problem. The the thing is, you get people who are too constrained by the idea that they have to understand how to be a car salesman. You're going to miss a lot of people. You're going to miss a lot of Jedi's with PMA. Precise, yeah, precise. Anyway, so I look around and I realize that I am a figure of fun to the uh, to the six. Dippity do guys who used to be in the same fraternity at the University of uh, University of California uh, Davis, <laughs> and so I get up and Bob is real super nice about it, and he's like, "Um, so anyway, based on this, I feel like uh, you know, do some thinking on it about like how and he." actually says this about how committed you are to selling cars. And I stood up and he stood up and we shook hands and I was like, I'm going to go do some hard thinking on this. And he was like, okay, great. Get back to us. Cause we are looking for somebody. Super and I was like, interesting. I was like, so very good. Talk to you. I'm sure we'll talk again. He was like, good. I look forward to it. And everybody in the, everybody in the place as I walked out the door was like, thanks for stopping by. Look forward to talking to you. You know, and really, really nice as they just, as we, I moved toward the door and they had a very light hand on my back but they, as but they guided me out. Have you processed what was really happening? Because, I mean, do you think it was ultimately a kind of sales job? Were they staying in character? They didn't, they didn't like break into behind the scenes mode in any way, it sounds like. No, I think it was a, I think it was a situation where car dealers, I'm betting, have already I mean, they know as well as we do that there is a cliche, right? That there is a that people cast aspersions upon them. And so within their fraternity, uh they are they understand that they are actually a breed apart. And they embrace the idea that they are or they embrace the, the the misunderstanding that they are sleazes as a component of their own group identity, right? They're like, yeah, I get it. You think you'd be a good car dealer because you think you're a sleaze. And they probably, you, they probably part of the whole program would be to project that, oh, yeah, you know, there are some bad apples out there, but that's not what's going on here. That's right. And and I think what they saw in me was, and I'm not sure how many layers they were going down with me, but they were like, yeah, we get it. You think that being a car dealer would be funny. You think that being a car dealer would be fun because you would get to just be corny. You'd get to be a cheese ball um, and also sell cars. But here's the thing. Being a car dealer is, is not just hard. It truly is a calling. And we are... Like, being a car dealer is where you begin your career as a salesperson, sir. And if you are truly a salesman, one day, you know, this is like rabbit at run, ra- run, rabbit, run. 
Well, it's also guys, it's a little bit like Paris Island. I mean, you're, you're going to come in here and you're going to learn stuff that is going to be applicable for the rest of your career. Yeah. Like this you, is, you, will, you will die if you don't make it through this particular phase of the training. There's no such thing as an ex-Marine. That's right. You know That's what I'm right. Saying? Call me Sergeant. I work for a living. Yeah. So, I didn't know they stack shit that high. So they are... They were being very kind because what they were, because it was a joke within their gang that, like, here's another one who came in here trying to sell himself to us, but you don't sell to us. Mm-mm. Oh, oh mm-hmm. okay. We sell to you. We you're sell telling to you. us, yes. You're telling us that you are come you that the undercoating is on from the factory on you. Mm-hmm. We know that the undercoating is an option. And so they spun me around and got me out of they had no there was no they had no interest in like sending me out covered in shame because they knew when I thought about it, I was not I didn't have it. They gave you, and, you plenty of mental and emotional ammunition to realize how off base you were. Mm-hmm. Kinda. Yeah. Well and 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 walking up the hill from the Honda dealership, thinking to myself I do not have what it takes to be a used car dealer was for sure a reckoning because at that point in time, I could not differentiate between, um, between the motivation, uh, of any career. So it seemed to me that if you were going to be a philosophy professor or you were going to sell boats or you were going to reupholster mid-century modern furniture, the the commonality between those three jobs was that you had some quality of job having attitude, mm-hmm. right? That every one of those jobs required that you have moxie, that you work overtime, that you, you that you want it so bad, right? And and maybe uh, that's actually true. I mean, from the standpoint of a 22-year-old, mm-hmm. if I wanted to be a philosophy professor, if I wanted to sell luxury yachts, or if I wanted to be a, an upholsterer, I would need to pursue that and pursue it with, like, <clears throat> with an, enough passion to get through the apprenticeship period. And what I knew about myself was that I did not want to do anything that much. I'm so interested except- in the idea of the uh, calling. That's a phrase, I think, I feel like that's a phrase you would hear used primarily to say, uh, calling to the clergy. Like, you feel a calling to become a priest, or you feel that you know, the Lord is calling you to become a nun. And it, it's, it's interesting because, like, I am not a salesperson. I don't like talking about money. I'm bad at all of that. But I, I do think sa- at least sales writ large might be a kind of calling or sort of like I can't imagine any other job, you know, like my mom is just really, she was a really, really good salesperson. She was that rare kind of salesperson where like, not rare to me anyway, where like people genuinely liked her. Like they Mm -hmm. wanted, they wanted to please her. And she was, she was always so kind with people and so patient with people. And she would put up with shit that I would never put up with in a million years, like do whether it was real estate or retail. And, but I do think that there is a certain kind of personality and maybe it's a little bit manic or a little bit like, uh, to my mind, a little self-deceptive. But the truth is a good salesperson can sell anything, whether whether it's a car or a diamond or a house or, you know, well, whatever and I, it is. And I feel like we characterize salespeople as, as uh, you know, like 
slightly unethical or, because or pre- predators we, predators because we've all had an experience where we walked away from a deal feeling like we had been robbed and and yet i think there are a lot of very ethical salespeople whose motivation primary motivation is look i want to get you what you want and make you happy and make you feel like you got a good deal which is a great feeling while at the same time selling this thing for more than i paid for it yes which is which is intrinsic to capitalism and making me feel like I got a good deal. So if we can arrange a situation where you get what you want and you feel good about it and I get it to you and I feel good about it, we all feel great and we all get what we want. And I feel like that motivation within a salesperson is ethical. You know, it is. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, there are a lot of honest salespeople that are motivated by this <laughs> desire to make people happy. Um, and the unethical ones are the ones that are just like lying to you about what their costs were. I mean, you have to do a certain amount of like, hey, look, I got to make some money here. Right. But it never, you know, like I'm always I'm always trying to deal with salespeople in a way that's like, no, you know what? I'm not going to walk out of here satisfied unless you lose. Yeah, or a situation like rip off the next guy. But give me a good deal. Yeah, I, I searched on the internet. I know what this thing costs. You know, yeah, exactly. Like that like, I'm nobody's fool. And you know, I spent I spent enough time in the Moroccan carpet markets to know that <laughs> whatever you, whatever you think the lowest price that those guys paid for the carpet is, they paid half that, or mm-hmm. they paid a third. Um, but I am not a salesperson. My parents weren't salespeople. There's no one in my family, all the way back as far as I can tell, that ever sold a goddamn thing. Uh, they all bought high and sold low. That is like our family motto. <laughs> buy, buy high, sell low, sell low. It's right on the top of our crest. Um, that's not our. That's not our business. You know, our business is making people happy by them walking away feeling like, wow, I just, I just took over a bank, and he just didn't even know. He didn't. He doesn't remember where the papers are. Um, the thing with, <clears throat> so my mom started after my, after, I think it might have been like while my, no, it was while my father was alive was when she started. But of course, that's what she started doing full time after he died. Uh, so this is, you know, 1974, she's doing this full time. But, you know, as we used to say in the business, you know, real estate is a contact sport. Like it's really so much, at least then, I can't say if it's true now. I suspect it's true now. It's all about a couple things. I mean, as far as the, business part of this a big part of it is like you know once you decided am i am i primarily a buying person or a selling person do i work on a team do i do this i you know i don't know how much that's changed since the 70s i'm guessing a lot but what was true then was that it was all about repeat business and word of mouth to get started it was going to take you you know year two three years to get to where you might have somebody who bought or sold a second thing with you but it was really all about going well listen if you're going to do anything with real estate you have to call this person like Mm. you need this army of people out there who think you are like unimpeachably honest and decent and like that is your opportunity in that kind of a market where there is the idea of the like the skanky guy in a blazer with the dippity dupe you know what I'm saying, though? So it really benefited her to be the way that she was. She mm-hmm. would rise above that feeling of this being this really skeevy kind of industry. But, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, that's, I, I, I assume that that's true for cars, too. Like your dad yeah. with the mechanic, right? You're with his airplane right. mechanic. You know there right. must be people who love going in and just visiting. Go visit with Bob. Bob is the best. I would never yeah. buy a car from anybody but Bob. No, my dad would fly to Alturas, California every year just to hang out with this guy that never said a goddamn word, as far as I can tell. 
I mean, my right. dad and he would stand there, kick the tires for four. I mean, I would sit out on the tarmac in the hot sun and look at them inside that hangar, and they're walking around, they're kicking dirt on the ground. I don't know whether they're talking about World War II or what, but as soon as I walked in the hangar, not a word was spoken. It was just like uh, all he would say, yeah, rip, rip, rip. my dad would, well, you know, and he'd go, yeah, yeah. And, but somehow they had this relationship, you know, and my dad trusted him. But but this idea of a calling, I really felt that the absence of a calling was the thing that was keeping me out of the world. Because mm-hmm. I looked around you're and I was like... You're raised to feel that way. I mean, I think you're really raised to feel that way. And I really did feel like I was a born this or I was born that. I felt like I was a born philosophy professor. I had no interest in selling boats but I but and or doing upholstery. But I did feel like I should be somebody... Basically, they hadn't invented podcasting yet. No, but BMOC. Right. You know, or so, something, I felt like there was, so, there, lightning needed to strike. And, mm-hmm. and, and it happened one time, I may have described this to you, but I was on a ferry boat from, uh, from Tangier to Marseille. And I'm sitting on the ferry boat, and somehow I strike up a conversation with a guy who was probably my age now, you know, uh, mid to late 40s. A peepaw. A peepaw. But he had that, you know, he had that glint in his eye. Uh, he was he was an American living some kind of life where he was on this ferry boat, and he seemed very comfortable on this ferry boat. Like he'd been on, like he'd gone from Tangiers to Marseille many times. And somehow we saw each other across a crowded dance floor and I was with a bunch of young people and we, you know, we were, um, we were smoking Kiff and drinking some kind of, you know, uh, garbage beer and smoking camels. And he was sitting, you know, somewhere on the ferry boat and I have no idea how we got into conversation with each other, but we really zoomed in on each other. Hmm. And this isn't a, um, this isn't a, like a, a short ferry ride, right? This is all the way across the ocean. This is an overnighter. And we're just like, really, he was like an older me. And in fact, he looked like me. I have no idea whether he was me. He could be time travel me. Oh, bootstrap paradox. This could be alternate universe me, Mm -hmm. who's like, Hey, pull up a chair, kid. I mean, because why would he have grabbed me out of the, out of the mist? Right. And why would I? He knows even if you don't. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. And we sat and talked for a long, long time. And, you know, I was so full of shit when I was 20 years old. I was, I was so full of shit. I was a giant. So rare. So rare for somebody in the early 20s to be full of shit. I was, uh, I was like a tanker truck of shit. (laughs) And I had, I just was spinning all the time, spinning yarn, spinning big highfalutin, you know, just gobbledygook. And he was very patient and we were talking earnestly, just frankly, as I would be if I was if I met somebody like that now, right? I would be very patient. I would be slightly bemused as this kid told me that he was meant to be a philosopher and a used car salesman or whatever, or that that the philosophy of used cars was something that no one had fully uh, explored. And, you know, and he kind of, he he seeded the pot a little bit. And after many hours of this, he said, listen, here's what I think you should do. You know, and I was like, yes, because very few adults ever said that to me. Uh, that way. And he said, don't go back to America. You don't, you don't belong there. This is where you belong out on the, out on the open ocean. Like make your own way. Hmm. 
Make your own way in the world. Don't don't worry about the go back to college. Don't worry about this. Go back to the United States and impress your high school friends. Like, get on with it. There's a big wide world out there. And you're already, you're already, you've cut the cable already. You've already done the hardest part in some ways. You took the first step. You're out here. You got no money. You're in, you're washing your clothes in the, in the sink of a pension every night. (laughs) You got no friends. Let's be honest. (laughs) And you got nothing. You got nothing except you have, you are young and you have all your strength and you got all this, you're spinning all this garbage, right? You've got, you know, your mind is going a thousand miles an hour. So get on with it. Get out of here. What are you doing on this boat? You're going, you're going over to Italy to hang out with some college dorks at, at the University of Florence? Like, that's not what, you, you don't, I mean, go for it, right? I mean, there's more beer to consume. He's, he's encouraging but, you to really shake up your worldview. Yeah, he's saying right? go to India. He's saying keep moving. He's saying, I mean, and this was two months before the Berlin Wall fell. So he had a, he had this, because he was time travel me, he had this idea, right, that there was this opening that up till now there was no Prague, but in four months there was going to be a Prague. And you could not live in Prague except uh, under special circumstances in June of 1989 but by May of 1990 be the be the first western dumbass student to decide that Prague is where they're going to plant their flag wow. or Warsaw or Istanbul or whatever and he's just and he just blew the top off of my head like like here you are this is you're already doing it you already have the calling now just cut that last rope and be gone. And I was on this boat and, and you know, my eyes were wide as saucers. And he had this, you know, and he was smoking cigarettes, right? He's This this is an earlier time when 50-year-olds still sat around in ferry boats smoking cigarettes. Well, and it's also, I feel like it's important to highlight that when you are that age and you feel so wise, that if when somebody is able to hear you respond and then cut through your own truckload of bullshit, it can be very... Moving, it can be very. It, you really have this sort of like this feels like an important moment. Moment, mm-hmm. don't you think? Uh, absolutely. And this like was this feels this feels portentous. This feels like the as they say, the universe is trying to tell me something. When I look back on my life, I often say, "Where were my mentors? Where were the guys that that said, you know, come with me? I'm where were the Mister Miyagi's?" And the problem was, I wasn't really looking for one there. They may have come across the bow multiple times. And I was like, listen, you don't need to tell me about selling used cars. Like I was, I, uh, 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 one of the characteristics of a mentor is not that he's begging 20 year olds to accept his teachings. Uh, and what what can I do to put you in this philosophy today? That's right. Like, (laughs) Oh, 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 you would like to learn glass blowing. I'm begging you to follow, follow me, you know? But this one particular encounter was actually this moment where there was a teacher and it was prior to any kind of situation where I could have remained in contact with him. I don't think either of us made any attempt to to retain contact with each other because as far as I could tell, and he may be thinking back on it, he may have been full of shit too. Um, 
but he gave the impression of being someone who had done this, who had cut these ties, and it would have been he would have been coming out of a '60s context, so he may have been the the rare individual who cut the ties and then prospered. You know, he wasn't sitting on the the streets of Mumbai with a with a tin cup. He had cut his ties, but now was a citizen of the world. And I think he may have even used the term citizen of the world. Hmm. So for about four months in Europe at that time, 1989, I vagabonded around. I did go to the University of Florence and drink a lot of what ended up being Chianti because they don't really. This is almost a decade before the big walk. Yep. It was exactly a decade before the big walk. And I wandered around Europe at the time thinking to myself, I have cut the cable. I am now a citizen of the world. And, and, um, I'm the cat who walked by his wild loan and all things look alike to me. Hmm. And then the Berlin wall did fall. And I did happen to be, it wasn't happen, I read in the, on the front page of the International Herald Tribune that there were protests in East Germany, and obviously in Hungary at that point, things had come unglued, and it seemed like all the dominoes were falling. What the fuck was I doing in Florence? And I got on a night train to Berlin and arrived on November 11th, uh, 1989, as the wall opened. So I was there. And spent that, you know, and spent 10 days with a hammer and chisel chipping away at the freaking wall. And what? Being a, really? Being a, yeah, I was there. How did I not know this? Oh, my God. Um, and, and, had, and, and got there only because, got there at that moment only because I was laying around in Florence uh, drunk on Chianti and had been there a month. And I was like, God, what am I doing? And then I saw this newspaper headline and said, this is not, Florence is not the center. Berlin is the center. And so I was there and there, you know, whenever there's a retrospective of, of all those photographs of people climbing on the wall. You see and, the big sections the, falling over. Yeah, there at Brandenburg. I, I always scan them because I was there. And I've never found a picture of my... There was a, I remember being on a ladder, hammering. And the thing about the Berlin Wall is it wasn't just like you didn't put a chisel onto that and hammer it and big chunks of it fell away. That concrete was really strangely like amazingly solid but also kind of spongy so you would hit it with a hammer and your hammer would kind of bounce back hmm. you would barely get in you just get these tiny little slivers that's why when you see the the berlin wall having been chiseled it's just kind of like tiny little openings right nobody nobody got up there and just broke whole sections of it away they actually like you chiseled like you were breaking out of prison it it would take months to to chisel through this wall. But I'm up there on a ladder just hammering away at this wall, and there were photographers all around, like, kapow, 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 uh, because they didn't know what to point their cameras at. And the, and when the when the actual like when the gate opened and the little and all the East Germans in their little trabants, like six of them in a trabant, driving slowly through Checkpoint Charlie, and on the other side, like the West Germans were were like th- actually throwing handfuls of Deutschmarks in the windows of these Trabants. Like, welcome to the West. Here is money. <laughs> and wow. handing them uh, champagne and just like it was a it was a orgiastic riot of like welcome to the West. It couldn't have they were shaking cars with enthusiasm. And the East Germans looked like they were 
they had just landed on Mars. You know, their eyes were just freaking out. They were just freaking out. Like, How much, the West. They didn't have, I mean, was it, the, in East Germany, they probably, that was a pretty controlled media, too. They probably, I'm guessing, didn't. Well, their understanding of West Germany was that it was a whorehouse, mm. right? That it was a it was a drug den, and a, but they all knew people that had they all knew West Germans, right? I right. mean, their relatives and stuff. But they just they couldn't believe what they were seeing, and they, and they no one had prepared them for the fact that people would be throwing money in their windows. When it happened, it happened pretty fast. Like it, it just really seemed like that one year, like so much stuff happened so fast. Well, because I had been in I had been in Germany in September of that year, and had gone and stood there uh stood there next to the reichstag and looked across the river and the you know the border guards are looking at you through binoculars and they're in the river in their in their boats uh their machine gun boats i mean it was a tense and freaked out atmosphere even i still have my east german um visas because i actually paid the 50 deutschmarks and went over into east berlin in the summer of 89 and it was it was just like every spy movie, you know. It, it took us. We went through five different long hallways with blind turns and come to a guy. In a, so you could go there, but they couldn't come over here. Yeah, you okay. could pay money and go into East Berlin and walk around and have dinner, and you know, and uh, you had to pay for you had to exchange Deutschmarks at the official rate. But as soon as you were out in East Germany, it's not like there were people standing there ready to change money. Uh, it all was done kind of like somebody would sidle up to you and be like, "You want to, you want to, want a little bit better deal on the Deutschmarks than you got there at the border," and then you could. You could trade fifty dollars of uh, West German Deutschmarks for like a million East German Deutschmarks, and it actually was a problem. We went because you couldn't take the money back over, and they wouldn't exchange it back. I had to find something to spend it on. Yeah, and we we went into the nicest restaurant in East Berlin and ordered every single kind of food we could, and we were appalling because it was the nicest restaurant in East Berlin. All of the burgermeisters were there. It was like a. It was like a very elegant place and we were gross like it was me and a friend we were disgusting american college gross people who were super drunk and just getting more drunk on on whatever and ordering food and just dropping it on the floor like it was, <laughs> God, it was we were, this is hideous <laughs> we were disgusting and we we're walking around trying to go into trying to go into department stores like I gotta spend this money, just money falling out of our pockets. I gotta spend this money before I wonder, I go wonder how people get their ideas about Americans. <laughs> oh, we were terrible. We were, you know, we were the worst. Uh, and you couldn't buy anything. You'd go into a department store, and it was just like there, there wasn't anything. You, there was nothing to buy. Wow. Um, it was, it was amazing. But all by way of saying, like these historic, this, this experience, and all of that experience of, of just like. Living by the seat of my pants during that whole period, I was doing it under the under the rubric of this man on this boat having said, "Cut those ties, go." This was this is your calling. Be a citizen of the world. You are you are done. You your decision is made. And I'm here in Berlin. And frankly, I could have gone the opposite way. They're all pouring in, and I could have poured out, poured the other direction. And have kept going, I don't know, to Moscow, right? I mean, that was such a tumultuous time that an American student who was just like, what's over here, could have been, you know, could have gone wherever, right? I could be, I could be Vladimir Putin by now. <laughs> um, but it got to be Christmas time, 
and it was cold as shit, and I was in Germany, and somehow I had followed some, I met some German guy, and he was like, I live in Garmisch-Partenkirchen, you want to come home with me for turkey dinner? And I was like, sure. And I got to Garmisch, and it was cold, and I was so poor, and Garmisch was so rich, and sentimentality creeped in. Mm -hmm. And I was like, it's Christmas time, and my mom... And it's so cold, and I don't have a jacket. I didn't have a jacket, um, which I probably could have. I could have found a jacket, but I. But I let myself. I. I was weak, and I let that weakness spread, in the form of sentimentality and in the form of feeling incapable. I was scared. I was scared to be a citizen of the world. I was scared to look out at infinity because I wasn't sure that I had what it, whatever it was. I was not prepared to cut that last rope. I you, had, you were, uh, you were vulnerable. I was, I was 20 mm -hmm. and didn't know that I could. And that sentimentality got in me like a, like gangrene. And eventually I was, I called my mom on the phone. I was like, hi, <laughs> Merry Christmas, mom. You know, this was back when you had to, making a long distance call was a whole afternoon's worth of rigmarole. My mom was like, how is it? And I was like, it's cold. <laughs> and she was like, well, I mean, if you want to come home for Christmas, we'd love to see you because she's my mom. Mm-hmm. And I, and I made that classic decision, which is I'll go home for Christmas and then I'll come back. I'll fly home for Christmas, but there's a lot going on here. I want to, you know, I want to be the first American dingbat in Prague. The rope, the rope is still uh, detached. You'll just knot it up for just this little while. Yep. Go back, have Christmas at home, get a jacket. Uh, I have one in the closet that I didn't bring. I'll get a jacket. And, uh, and then I'll be back here in, you know, I'll be back here in January. It'll be like going home for some or going home for winter break. And then I will resume my life of a, of a completely free citizen of the world. <laughs> I just want to go home and have, because my mom makes amazing fudge <laughs> and, you know, and, and really I'm doing her a favor. Sure. I'm doing my mom. You're being, you're being a good son. Being a good son, I'm going to go back there. I'm going to give my mom a little kiss. I'm going to reassure her that I'm a that I'm a good boy, and then it's back to back to Europe to pursue this life of danger. And so she said, "I'll you know I'll fly you home." And I was in Garmisch, and she was able to buy some. You know, at the time you could fly two hundred seventy five dollars. She found some ticket from Paris, so I had to get from Garmisch to Paris, and so I went on this long uh train ride across the, across Europe across the Alps at Christmas time and it was very beautiful and I felt a sense of purpose I was going home to help my mom and <laughs> and have some fudge and get a coat <laughs> and I felt really good about it and then and then right right back to my new life <laughs> and then right back right back to the life okay, of Okay, I'll have of, a little more fudge <laughs> of a man of adventure listen it, maybe you could put some fudge in a bag yeah It'll help sustain me for that first few weeks in Yugoslavia. Yep. As I'm making my way go you know, east, in, mom. <laughs> into the future. 
And I got back to Alaska, and I collapsed in a heap, uh, and spent then uh, like five months smoking pot, and uh, and then I got a job as the Red Robin. Mm. <laughs> so true, truly a citizen of the world. Did you quote Rudyard Kipling to me? <laughs> <laughs>